This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Remember to listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know it all. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today's episode is a very special episode of Know-It-All. Today, we'll hear from students and we'll learn from their experiences and their stories. My very special co-host is my son, Masai Brown-Andrews, who is 10 years old. Good morning, Masai. Good morning, Mother. Today, we're talking about Trayvon Martin, his murder, and the jury verdict. So Oprah Winfrey recently echoed the sentiment that Trayvon Martin is a modern-day Emmett Till. We are also poised to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Masai and I are thrilled to welcome to the show today a youth activist from Miami, Florida. I'm going to let Kino Walker speak in just a little bit, but why don't we first talk about what we're here for today. Um, in February 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was gunned down outside his father's home in Sanford, Florida. We all know the story by now. Trayvon was young and black, unarmed, out for a stroll, talking to a friend on his phone. On. And now we have Kino Walker joining us. Is this Kino? This is Cheyenne. Hi, Cyan. How are you? I'm with the Dignity in Schools campaign. Wonderful. So we are on the air. We are recording right now, um, recording our show about Trayvon Martin, 50 years after the march. Why don't you tell us where you are, Cyan? Well, currently I am in Brooklyn, and I'm okay. at a meeting right now. Well, I'm at a meeting right now with DSC, so we're going to have our regular meeting today. Excellent. So we, my son is co-hosting with me today. He's 10 years old, and we just introduced the concept of um, what we're talking about today. We're talking about Trayvon Martin. We talked about how he was killed by George Zimmerman uh, in February 2012, and just yeah. recently the jury rendered a verdict. Um, and, you know, I think that, that George Zimmerman um, is, a, is a symbol, but... Trayvon himself is a symbol, and he's a symbol of so many black black men and boys who have lost their lives to a system that is, at best, distrustful of them and, at worst, hateful and and murderous. I think of Jordan Davis and Darius Simmons and Oscar Grant and Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and so many others who have lost their lives. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. Um, Cheyenne, what have you and some of your peers gone through personally since the Trayvon murder and verdict? Well, I'm 16 years old, and I'm currently in high school. I'll be a senior in September. And mm-hmm. as a young female living in Brooklyn, New York, 
I am a part of an organization called Make Third New York, and we do a lot of work around police reform. So that's where I became more hands-on with police work and stop and frisk and all those different things. So if I didn't know anything about justice in America, because if I didn't know anything about justice at all, I wouldn't have the feelings that I have today. After the verdict came out, me and my family were watching it, I just left the room and I immediately started to cry. And I went mm-hmm. on social media because most of most young people, we go on social media and we talk about what we're going through, what we have to say, so that everyone else can have know what we're t- what's going on in our life. So I immediately started mm-hmm. to cry, and I got on a conference call with some of the other youth leaders that I know within DSC and other organizations until 12 a.m. the next day. So we were all angry and frustrated and disappointed, but... The interesting thing is that most of us knew that Trayvon wouldn't get justice because this is not the first time that has happened, and that's unfortunate that he did not get justice. This We're living mm-hmm. in 2013, 2013. This is a new year. People were expecting new things. But for the fact that Trayvon not to get any justice is just to show that this system is not here to protect young black males specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just hurts me as a female to know, and who has a, a brother, to know that if my brother was to just innocently walk down the street, he can get stopped by a cop. If he says something that cop doesn't like, he can he, his life can be easily taken away, and that's unfortunate. That's right. That's right. And, I and think there there are so many policies and practices out there right now that seem to really be targeting black and brown men and boys um yes. and you know we uh we watched a very moving video of uh a youth who exposed you know exactly what stop and frisk is and what it actually looks like when he recorded on his iPod yes. um the the police that were pulling him over and that were detaining and harassing him um and you're you are there in New York City and so you know about the stop and yes. frisk policy there you know a federal judge recently ruled that the stop-and-frisk policy of the NYPD is unconstitutional. And in her exactly. historic ruling, Judge Scheinlin said that no one should live in fear of being stopped whenever he leaves his home to, to go about the activities of daily life. And she called yeah. the program indirect racial profiling. Cheyenne, what do you think about the stop-and-frisk program and the court's ruling? Well, I am I'm thankful for the court's ruling for them to see that it is unconstitutional. And with the stop and frisk practice overall, I it's, it sickens me, honestly, to know that every single day that you walk down the street, a cop, and it, it doesn't even have to do with race anymore, because when you really look at it, it's the system that tells a cop what to do, because there's a quota, and you have to arrest a certain amount of people every single day. For you to walk down the street, for you to walk down the street, leaving your house, going to the grocery store, and a cop sees you, because of the color risk, he stops you and says that you have something on you, that you have a weapon. And then he says that he has the right to do that because it's protecting the neighborhood. What neighborhood are you protected if you're stopping me and this is my neighborhood? I've done nothing wrong. And you cannot prove that I've done anything wrong because you just stopped me because of the color of my skin. And it's actually mm-hmm. sickening, and I'm getting choked up right now, and I'm sorry for that. But No, don't apologize. 
it's, it's just, it's unimaginable because most police officers, because there's, I don't usually like to use the term good or bad. It's just that people who have led astray from what they need to do. And because of this mm-hmm. quota, police officers have to do it, or they would either be put in a neighborhood where it's dangerous in that neighborhood, or they get a job, or they get suspended for not stopping people because of the color of their skin. It's mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. wrong. It's morally wrong for you to stop someone because of the color of their skin. You're saying that they mm-hmm. are wrong. You're saying that they are illegal. We're all human beings, and that's what we are first before we're black or before we're white or before we're Hispanic or we're from Asia. We're all human beings, and we're all brothers and sisters. You're absolutely right. And, you know, my my son, who's here with me, is 10 years old, and I I worry about him, not not the way that he will act or, or what he will do um, in any kind of criminal way, but I worry about how he will be perceived out there. Masai, what do you think about Stop and Frisk? Um, I think stop and frisk is a little scary. I wouldn't want to be stopped like that. But I can't really put the blame on the police officers because every time I'm angry at somebody or something, there's always something that's happening behind the scenes that makes me unable to be angry with them anymore. I'm not angry at the police officers, but I am angry with the people above them who are transforming them into, into who are making them stop innocent people for no no good reason. There's nothing that will stop me from being angry with him. Yeah. You know, it it is uh uh I think you're right, it is a scary state of things and um, you know, Cheyenne, I think you really hit the nail on the head by saying that we are all human beings and if we only could see the humanity in one another then we wouldn't yeah. have Trayvon Martin. We wouldn't have Oscar Grant. You know, we wouldn't have to be afraid to walk down the street or afraid for our brothers and our sons to walk down the simply walk down the street um, and and be black men. Um, yeah. What what kinds of activities have you been doing there as a youth activist there in New York City related well, to children? Well, right now, currently, we're trying to pass the Community Safety Act which is Mm -hmm. helping to pass two bills, which is the 1080 and 1079, which is to have a general inspector, which is someone who would look over the NYPD. And with the Community Safety Act, I I strongly urge everyone to look into what the Community Safety Act is and know about the Community Safety Act because young people are the one like myself who are driving to get this bill passed so that people won't be racially profiled. And mm-hmm. every single day we're at Make New York and different organizations throughout New York City, and we're pushing, we're learning about these bills, we're going to doors, we're knocking on people's doors, we're talking to council members every single day. We're making phone calls or we're having press conferences, and we're having concerts, like open mics is what we say in our organization, where you as a young person, you show your talent and your frustration towards these practices. So we will do everything to get the community involved, and most of the time it's young people who are pushing for these bills to be passed are pushing for everyone to know what their rights are. And we've done, and with my organization, we've done many murals around the community, which is like Know Your Rights murals for people to see artwork from young people and to see that young people care about the community. 
And once a young person care about the community, older people are like our parents, our grandparents are gonna want to stand forward and say our young people should be protected, and they're the ones who are taking the step forward so our community can be safe. So we've been doing mm-hmm. a lot here in New York City to help the Community Safety Act bill be passed, and we're almost there. So I'm very, very, very excited for that. The voting will be this That's- Thursday. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that is huge. That is huge. Yeah. That is so empowering. I think that is a a tremendously empowering message for for young people to hear and know. You know that you are very much a part of the community, and you very much can take ownership and make changes to, you know, completely change mindsets and change hearts, so that we can we can eliminate these racial disparities that we see and uh, the implicit and explicit bias that we see in, in policies and practices that, that really impact communities of color. I, I applaud you on your work. That is fantastic. Thank you. And just for a quick moment, I would like to thank your son and thank you for having your son. He's only 10 years old, and you don't really see a 10-year-old talking on, like, a press conference or talking about what he really feels and what he knows, which is great. Which is, it's just amazing. And that's what we're trying to do all over America, all over the world, is have young people use their voice because we do have something to say. Every person has something to say. And I'm, thank you so much for saying that, and I do agree with you on everything that you've said before. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about the Attorney General, Eric Holder, um, and his recent announcement that the Department of Justice is revisiting its drug enforcement and sentencing policy. I want to take a listen to a very short clip of a speech that he gave recently to the American Bar Association. Let's listen. It's clear as we come together today that too many Americans go to too many prisons for far too long and for no truly good law enforcement reason. Let's be honest, some of the enforcement priorities that we have set have had a destabilizing effect on particular communities, largely poor and of color, and applied inappropriately, they are ultimately counterproductive. So Michelle Alexander, who is the author of The New Jim Crow and others, have famously recharacterized the war on drugs as a war on black and brown people. And a recent ACLU study showed that although white people use marijuana at higher rates than black people do, nationally blacks are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana crimes than whites. And in some states that number is as high as eight times more likely to be arrested than whites. So you know, I think this is all connected when we're talking about Trayvon Martin and we're talking about stop and frisk and we're talking about the war on drugs and we now have the, the Attorney General of the United States coming out and saying that there is there is a disparate impact on communities of color of some of these policies. Um, Cheyenne, what do you think? Do you think this will make a difference for black and brown youth in the so-called war on drugs? Well, With the what, from what I've known and from the research that I've done with war on drugs and its target, like you were saying, and like studies have shown that it's mostly on black and brown folks. 
I mm-hmm. simply believe that there are ways other than the tactics used in our system today to help attack war, the war on drugs and drugs within our communities. Because as you're saying, the studies show that it's more used in the Caucasian population than it is in black and brown. If, if I'm going to use a bit of an example. If someone in your community is using drugs to harm your community and there is, you want to do a tactic, there's many different ways and targeting a select group of people. Because when you're targeting a select group of people, those ones who are doing the injustice are actually getting away. And instead of targeting mm-hmm. one group of people, we all need to target what the cause of the problem is, why we're using the drugs. We need to get to the root of where the, those drugs came and how they got into our children, how they get into my little brother's arm or the young people's pockets or how they got into our possession overall. Mm-hmm. So I would have programs, like after-school programs, to get kids off the street, to talk to people and tell them the side, the bad effects of using drugs within our community and how to get rid of drugs in our community. And just we need to do more, have more organizations that stand up and say the targeting of young black and brown males is just injustice. It's unconstitutional, as the judge was saying. As she was stopping for unconstitutional, the war on drugs, the Group that is targeted is also unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And I think you know what we have seen certainly, and, and this is why I think that the attorney general finally spoke. What we've seen is that our our prisons are overcrowded. They are overcrowded with people who are otherwise talented and otherwise could be skillful employees and could be, um, you know, contributing to to improving our society. Um, and they are overwhelmingly black and brown people. So, you know, I, I, I think that there is, there feels like a movement afoot and that movement seems to be really gaining traction, which is exciting. Um, and I just hope that we can, um, can take that and run with it. Masai, what, what do you think about, about all of this? I think that it's really unfair that people who are, who are doing this, who are committing the same crimes don't get stopped because they're of the lightest, they're of, they're white and they are not, they're not, they're not of color. I think it's really unfair that people of color get stopped for doing the same crime or not even doing anything. Exactly. And there's other people who are actually doing crime they can't stop at all. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Um, so, Cheyenne, talk a little bit. I know you're not in Florida, um, and I'm hoping that, that our other youth will be joining us still. I know that um, they're they're busy down there at Power U in Miami, um, and Kino Walker hopefully will be joining us shortly. But um, talk a little bit about stand your ground laws. You know, we we saw the the um, Dream Defenders there take over the Tallahassee, the capital, the Florida State Capitol in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, they occupied the the state capitol and demanded an audience with the governor, which they eventually got. Um, 
And they were demanding a session, a special session, to really address the stand-your-ground law in particular and to talk about implicit racial bias and racial profiling and, and you know, calling for an end to the school-to-prison pipeline. And, and the, the state capitol was filled with young people who were voicing their discontent with the system and who were really speaking out about, um, you know, on behalf of Trayvon Martin and his family, but also on behalf of of the black and brown people that we never really hear about uh, who who don't get the same attention. Um, so, Cheyenne, what are your thoughts about, you know, Stand Your Ground in particular? Is, is, it, is Stand Your Ground the problem, do you think, or do you think it's more the explicit and implicit racial bias in the legal system overall that is a problem? I believe that it is the racial bias within the legal system because – Mm-hmm. Would you stand in your ground? It's understandable for you to say that everyone has a right to protect their home. But if you have, if you're going to protect your home, someone has and must be within your home trying to harm you. Trayvon was nowhere. Trayvon was walking away from Zimmerman, and Zimmerman followed mm-hmm. after he was told not to follow Trayvon. So Zimmerman mm-hmm. was not at all standing his ground. He was not standing his ground. Trayvon was walking away, away from danger, but Zimmerman followed him, con- continued to follow him until he took Trayvon's life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, honestly, in Brooklyn, in my neighborhood, we don't have neighborhood watchers. We don't have any, we don't really know or hear about standing your ground. There's no one in our neighborhoods to look out for if, any, there's an intruder within our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. This, I've never, really, honestly, I've never heard of the Stand Your Ground law until the Trayvon incident, because it, it doesn't appear within our neighborhoods, within black and brown neighborhoods, but mostly people within low-income communities, because there are officers are always in our neighborhoods, and then for, sorry, mm-hmm. officers are always in our neighborhoods, and. Most of the time, people, if you see a police officer within your neighborhood, you feel protected. He or she is there, and they're standing their ground. They're standing their ground for the community. They're going to protect the community. But instead, they're targeting black and brown folks within the community. And it's just because of the system that everyone knows about. And no one, and now people, it's the 20, 21st century, people are going to take a stand to change the system, to challenge the system, say that what we are doing is wrong, and it's injustice, and we need to change that. And it doesn't even have to do with specific as stand your ground. It's a larger aspect. It always yeah. comes up to something larger, something that most of us cannot explain other than it being racial profiling or the practices with stop and frisk or standing your ground. It's something much, much more than those specific policies and those specific laws. Yes. You know, you, um, Cheyenne, you spoke so eloquently earlier about, you know, the fact that we are all human. And I I regularly say that if we could just see that the humanity in one another, then we wouldn't find ourselves in these positions of discounting people based on what they look like or that they are different from us. So I wonder if you would just, you know, for, for the humanity, for people to be able to see your humanity, just talk about your experience. What is it like to live in a community where you are 
being policed rather than protected by the police in your neighborhood? Honestly, I've I've always said that race or injustice within any society is just a group of people who are in a race to get something that's not tangible, which is power. Everyone's just mm. rushing and they're running to get something that's they don't know what they're striving for. And for me to walk around in my neighborhood every day, see people that I know, I say hi to my neighbors, my neighbors say hi to me. There's strangers within our neighborhood, we say hi because we're all humans. That's what we do. It's in us to naturally be nice to someone, to say hi to someone. But if a police officer's in my neighborhood and there's a crime going on a few blocks away and he or she is not doing what they're supposed to do, which is to protect the community, which is to protect and serve the people, and then instead they're attacking someone who has done nothing wrong, it makes me feel as though I don't belong here, mm-hmm. that I don't belong, I'm not supposed to be here, and that's wrong. I, I, I'm supposed to feel as though I belong. I, I don't want to be chased out of my neighborhood or chased away from my people and say that within these neighborhoods it's a bunch of crime. It's not a crime-filled neighborhood because the people there – they know, we know each other. It's a big family within my community. We mm-hmm. all know each other. We mm-hmm. would say hi to each other. The majority of the time when an officer comes, and if you are being attacked by someone, it's just only natural for you to say, what, what is wrong? What did I do? And if someone right. hits you continuously, continuously starting to beat on you, you're going to want to protect yourself. It's mm-hmm. not wrong to protect yourself. Just like everyone right. was said that he was standing his ground, he was trying to protect himself or protecting himself from someone who has done nothing wrong. But other people mm-hmm. are protecting himself from people who are doing something wrong, those people who are supposed to protect us. And I don't mm-hmm. want to feel as though I don't belong anymore. I want to feel like I can walk down the street and say hi to an officer, or he and she say hi back to me, and how was your day? And I ask the same to them. I want to feel as though if I walk down my neighborhood, that cop will feel safe, and I will also feel safe. Because I can protect a cop if I, I I can do something. If I see a cop is hurt, I will do something. I will try to help him the best way I can. If a cop sees me hurt, I will hope that she or she will do something to help me. Don't ignore mm-hmm. me because of the color of my skin. As I was saying before, we're all human beings, and we all need to love and help each other. And we mm-hmm. all need to feel wanted and be who we are. Don't we? For, for me to try to be someone else because I don't feel wanted in a certain neighborhood or because someone says that you don't belong here or the color of your skin is wrong, I don't want to hear that. I want to feel wanted by everyone because we're all human beings. And we all, we all therefore, deserve that. That's absolutely exactly. right. So, Masai, why don't you talk about how, what is it like for you as a as a Ten-year-old black boy. Um, I think it, it's kind of hard to approach the police. And again, I I don't blame the police. However, I'm still a, a little afraid of the police. I think it's scary because if someone approached the police for help, I feel as if they might they might deny me because of the color of my skin. But or or my just might not might ignore me because of the color of my skin. 
and I don't put the fault on them. I'm just, I just don't, I don't want to to be judged and therefore not, not able to receive help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, of course, I think we focus a lot on the police, um, and I, I think, Nefaya, you're right to, to say that you can't blame necessarily individual police officers. You know, I think there are certainly some bad actors out there, um, but I do think that police officers in many instances are responding to a system that allows them to racial profile and even encourages them to do so. And so, you know, I think, Cheyenne, it's so important that we do hear your story and that we hear from youth so that we can really understand how we can, in telling your story, pressure the system to change. And then, you know, in pressuring the system to change, we can make sure that the individuals who are enforcing the laws of that system are are changing also. Um, so, you know, here we are. It's 2013, and we are celebrating 50 years after the March on Washington. Um, you know, we are preparing to really kind of get into this week of, of activities Masai, you want to you want to talk about that? Yeah. So as Allison said, it's 50 years after the March on Washington. I think we've made some slow and steady progress. However, the progress has been very slow, and should and I think it should be much faster. Next Wednesday will be the official celebration. Although events are kicking off this week, what are some of what are some of your hopes and aspirations for the country. Cheyenne? <laughs> That's a very, very interesting question. Thank you for asking me that. My my hopes as a young female and aspirations for the, the uh, this country is that we all as a people, as one nation, can stop and stand together and notice what we're doing to each other. Mm. I hope that maybe in four years, maybe next year, maybe tomorrow, something can change. There's going to be a new law or there's going to be new thoughts from everyone to notice that what we're doing to each other is wrong that we can stand together as one nation because there are people, there are groups of people who know what we're doing is wrong, who are fighting for what we're do, for fighting for justice, but not everyone is aware. If it's even just one day for everyone to know, because knowledge because knowledge is power, and for someone to know what we're doing to each other and how we can change it together instead of just one group or one racial group fighting for one thing. We're all fighting for something. We are all fighting for something. We can fight for that together. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my hopes and aspirations. Thank you for asking that question because now I can go and think more on what I want or what my hopes are for this nation, what my brother's hopes are for this nation, what everyone's hopes are for this nation. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, um, I would like to say something about about what I think about the the stop and frisk. 
um, with the stop and frisk, I think that that some of the sets are hollow. That um, but that if they that they um they can't they are provoking you so that they can find something to arrest you for. And I think um I would like to know what what your thoughts are on, on this on what they're doing, on the provoking to to try to uh, to attempt to find something they can convict you of to put to put um you in jail. Well, for as I was saying before, police officers, especially from what I've known in New York City, from my knowledge of the NYPD, they have to follow a system. And like you were saying, it's not you can't just blame one individual person. And 99% of the time, people who are stopped are innocent. And it's understandable that what they say is that you need to if someone looks suspicious because they do have a certain list of rules on who to stop or what makes someone look suspicious or what someone can go to jail for. We all know that if you do something, unfortunately, if you maybe like, kill someone, you can't go to jail for that. But the stop and frisk laws in America, it's targeting black and brown folks and targeting people who look different, targeting people of the LGBTQ community, targeting people because their pants are below their waist. So I would agree with most people when they say that it is wrong and we can change because there are other ways where you can help protect the community through stop and frisk. As I was saying, the Community Safety Act law, it's not getting rid of the stop and frisk law or policy completely. There's changes that need to be made to the policy or to the law, which is to end racial profiling and to have a general inspector, and he or she will be the overseer of what the NYPD do or what police officers do in each state. If there's something, there's an injustice within that um, district or that NYPD, that general inspector is not biased to say, because I'm ex-cop, he or she would not be an ex-cop, so he or she can't be biased towards what is punishment or if that cop should be suspended for harming an innocent person. There are many, many ways to change the stop and frisk policy. There are many things that we can do together as a community involving police officers within our community because they are a part of our community that can help change the stop and frisk law. There's just so many, there's so much more that we can do all together. It's so true, and I think, you know, a very important point to make is that nine times out of ten, literally nine of the ten people who were stopped and frisked in New York City were innocent. And this is a story that has to be told in in addition to when we're talking about racial disparities in student discipline, when we are looking at those racial disparities and people want to say, well, you know, black and brown children just misbehave more. Actually, when you look at the more objective categories of offense where we there's very little room for discretion, you either have a weapon or you don't. You either have drugs in your possession with the intent to distribute or you don't. Um, we see far fewer disparities in those categories of offense that don't require any discretion 
where for those categories of offense that do, um, so insubordination or disrespect or things like that that really re- depend on the the person perceiving the behavior to categorize the behavior, that's really where we see the spike in racial disparity. And so that is part of telling the story of humanity in one another, um, of saying that although these policies are in place and people want to say stop and frisk is important because it makes us safer, if nine times out of ten the people who are being stopped and frisked are innocent of any crime, we're actually not helping to reduce crime and we're only criminalizing a population for no good reason at all. Um, so I really I appreciate that point, Cheyenne, and that's a really, really important, uh, important takeaway. Um, I, I am so inspired by you, Cheyenne, and, and you, Masai. Thank you so much for being here, and I know that Kino wanted to be here. I know that they're very, very busy down in Miami. But, um, Cheyenne, I, I take such inspiration from, from the work that you're doing and, and from your words of wisdom. I've learned such a great deal here. Uh, today from you. What what do you want people to know, Cheyenne, just about youth activism? I think that your message is very, very empowering for for youth. But what what would you say to the the grown folks, the educators and the, the activists who might be listening today? My voice, Messiah's voice, Trayvon's voice, every young person in this world we all have a voice. And there this is a new era where we're going to stand up for ourselves. We're going to show our parents. We're going to show educators and scholars that we, too, want to be important. We want to be lords. We want to be judges. And for us to do that, we all need help and support because we're intelligent and our voices are powerful. Our voices are powerful because we know what is going on. And I would urge and I urge scholars and lawyers and doctors who are our listeners and activists who are listening to this to push for more organizations where it's youth-led, push for more policies where young people have a voice in their school. We can make a change within our schools because we're doing it today. We're the ones who are sitting in the class each and every day making a change within our lives and impacting our teachers and impacting the future because we are the future generations. And everyone know that young people of today are future leaders of tomorrow and we will we will show everyone that we are futures of tomorrow. So all I can say to that is thank you and and just wow. <laughs> Cheyenne is a 16-year-old senior in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Cheyenne. Thank you. And thank I also have to thank me. my my brilliant and adorable co-host, my 10-year-old son, Masai. Yes. Thank you for co-hosting thank Know you. It All Today, Masai. <laughs> Round of applause for Masai. <laughs> Future president. <laughs> <laughs> so, audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about student voice and Trayvon Martin 50 years after the March on Washington. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at Allison Brown Consulting. 
www.thepeacefulwomanshow.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you.